Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Monday. Time to hear some of the messages you've sent into the mailbag. Uh, we got stuff about numeracy. We've got stuff about super intelligent AIs. We've got stuff about free son. Uh, it's going to be great. Rob, do you want to start with this message from Jim in New Jersey? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's always great to hear from Jim in New Jersey. Jim writes in and says, Robert and Joe, I have several thoughts on your recent numeracy podcast. Mathematics is both invention and discovery. Your mention of chess is a good metaphor. The sheet of paper one gets in a department store chess set contains the rules of chess. This is the invention. Most people can learn the rules of chess in an hour. However, bookshelves are filled with chess books. These are the discoveries of chess that have emerged from the single page of rules. People can spend a lifetime studying these discoveries. Mathematics is similar. Euclidean geometry consists of five postulates, that is, invented principles that define points, lines, etc. The theorems about angles, triangles, etc. are their discovered consequences. When these principles align with something in the real world, such as the management of land ownership, then geometry can be used to manage land ownership via surveying. For which of our senses do we have this innate logarithmic numeracy ability? And then Jim uh, breaks it down a little bit. Vision. I think we all agree that we can look at two groups of things and estimate their basic ratios pretty accurately. Hearing. While I can compare relative differences in pitch and volume, I am not sure I could do ratios accurately. Can I easily tell that one sound is twice as loud as another? Touch. This feels like hearing to me, too. While I can compare relative temperature, roughness, or weight, I'm not sure I could do ratios accurately. Smell, taste. Again, I feel like they are hearing and touch. I can compare relative strengths, but I don't think I have the ability to compare ratios accurately. If my hypothesis about logarithmic numeracy is accurate, then it's mostly an ability of vision. Is it part of our visual cortex? What form of innate ratio comprehension do people blind from birth experience? I don't think that counting is innate. We all learn it externally, usually from our parents in counting fingers or toys. As we grow and continue into adulthood, we constantly use external tools to keep track of our counting, such as fingers, numeric symbols, pencils and paper, abacuses, calculators, spreadsheets, etc. Even when we do uh, counting exclusively in our heads, we store the numbers in our short-term memories, and without constant refreshment, the values disappear. If we had innate counting abilities, we wouldn't need those external tools. I recommend the one-hour 2014 BBC documentary, The Story of One, hosted by Terry Jones of Monty Python fame. A search on YouTube usually provides several copies, and Jim includes one for us. Uh, He says, Jones traces the story of one, starting with a 20,000-year-old bone found in the Congo with a consistent number of scratched notches on it, which cannot be done without the ability to count them. He traces one through Sumerian tokens, used as a form of money, through Roman numerals, and into our modern era. Jim in New Jersey. Oh, a lot of interesting ideas here, Jim. Uh, So this one obviously came in between our two episodes on numeracy because at the end here, Jim is uh, is referencing the Ishango bone, which we talked about in the Mm -hmm. second episode, uh, which, you know, is a very interesting artifact from about 20,000 years ago discovered in the Virunga region of the the Congo. And uh, it appears to be, I mean, it's hard to be perfectly sure, but it really looks like some kind of ancient mathematical technology, some sort of uh, 
aid to counting or computation. Uh, and it has these interesting patterns of numbers of scratches on it, such as one column that contains all the prime numbers between 10 and 20, and another column that at least uh, partially is composed of, of pairs of doubles, and then another column that contains uh, 10 plus and minus 1 and 20 plus and minus 1. Uh, and so it's hard to know exactly how to interpret that bone, but it's a super interesting artifact. And so I agree if the, the numbers of slashes are significant, it, and it would be a real coincidence if they're not significant, it seems like they probably are, this indicates some kind of counting and computation going on, though it's still up for debate exactly how best to interpret this thing. Yeah, and that documentary sounds uh, sounds especially interesting. I, I've seen a couple of things that, that Terry Jones, uh, the, the late Terry Jones, um, uh, hosted uh, various documentaries, and he was always delightful. So uh, I haven't mm-hmm. seen this one, but uh, I'll have to check it out. It sounds like it, it touches on some of the, 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 the basic beats that we touched on in these episodes. Uh, but of course, I'd love to see the visuals. You know, this may be a kind of trite observation, but I was just thinking about when in the earlier part of the email, when Jim is talking about the difference between uh, mathematics being a a discovery of something pre-existing in the universe or a human invention and and sort of straddling the difference there. Um, You know, I thought about how actually, at least the way Jim is talking about it is sort of similar to how you could think about language itself. So language is obviously a human invention. The words of your language were not like waiting out there in the universe to be discovered. They were made up by humans at some point. And yet Mm -hmm. with language, you can construct statements about the universe that are true. Right. All right, this next message comes from Josh. Josh says, Hi, Joe, Robert, and Seth. Uh, Your episode on numbers brought to mind a project that I just turned in for a computing class. I chose to write a program that modeled the 3D flight of a Frisbee, including drag and lift and accounting for the tilt of the disc as it is thrown. Let's just say there is a reason nearly all projectile motion problems are done in a vacuum. The governing equation was a nonlinear vector differential equation. Uh, And then he says, feel free to skip the next three paragraphs if you don't want a full explanation. We'll try them out here. Uh, So Josh says, a differential equation in a projectile motion uh, sense is where the acceleration of an object is a function of its velocity. Think of something in freefall approaching terminal velocity. Okay, that makes sense. A nonlinear differential equation is one where something is done to the velocity in the equation other than multiplying it by a constant, such as squaring it. My equation involved the Pythagorean theorem. Math doesn't have a way to solve them that I or the instructor were aware of. Uh, And then a vector equation means that there are actually three equations in one, one for X, one for Y, and one for Z, and there can be more, but we don't have a fourth dimension. To find the initial speed and velocity that are needed to hit a target, the equation has to be, quote, solved. As I said above, that isn't possible with my equation. The only thing I could do was plot an approximate path for the Frisbee based on a guess. I never hit the virtual target. Contrast that with a human and even with some animal brains. Without actually thinking any numbers or ever being consciously aware of what they're doing, a person can do in their head what was practically impossible for the computer. With enough practice, a person can hit a target with a frisbee in strong crosswinds, essentially solving my nonlinear vector differential equation. Computers are great, but there is a long way to go before we will match the human brain with transistors. The doctoral student who was teaching the class said that there have been studies on how we do these kinds of mental simulations. That might be an interesting topic for a future episode. All the best, 
Josh. Uh, Josh, I, I think this is a great point. This is something I think we, we've actually talked about on the show a long time ago in the in the deep past uh, about all of the amazing approximate calculation that's done by the brain. And I think this is another great example of how using exact values and having an arithmetic sense of quantities and, and numbers is maybe not always the most useful for all the kinds of things humans would need to do. In fact, for a lot of things humans need to do, it's better to have a sort of approximate judgment sense than it is to try to work out exact values. All right, let's move on to another one. This one comes to us from Lawrence. Hey, guys, dropping a note to pick a nit with you. I just listened to your episode on numeracy in which you expressed the belief that a dog might judge a quantity of meat by smell. Specifically, you suggested that if you were to cut a one-ounce piece of meat into two pieces, the dog would smell the same amount. While I don't know the answer definitively, I disagree. I think cutting the meat would increase the amount of smell because it would increase the surface area of the meat. Uh, and the surface is where the meat interacts with the air. It would not, however, double the smell because it would not double the surface area, even though it would double the number of pieces. Of course, I haven't tested this. It's an educated guess on my part. Thanks for the episode, Lawrence. Yeah, I was the one who uh, who suggested that. Lawrence, actually, just like seconds after I said that in the podcast, I was thinking the same thought that you just wrote in with. That's one of the perils of talking for a living. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're right. Probably increasing surface area uh, would increase the amount of smell. I That would just be a guess, though. Have you not experimented with your dog, Charlie, yet? No. Okay. Do, I, do I don't not, know how I'd test that. Do, I'd have do, to do you not think that he wants you to test this, <laughs> that you should get some meat and start slicing it up in the kitchen? Mm -hmm. Measure the surface area, Yeah, uh, build a little maze where he has to choose one path or another. Mm -hmm. But Lawrence, you're exactly right. It, this actually brings up a little uh, meta question about creating this podcast. I mean, it often happens that like I say something off the cuff on the show, and then later, maybe even seconds after I say it, I'm sort of doubting what I said. And then you come to the question of, okay, now do we need to, uh, do I need to try to screw around with that in editing and like take that out or just leave it in because it was my thought at the time? Mm -hmm. I don't know. This is, uh, as I say, one of the perils of, of talking into a microphone. Yeah. Well, I think with the, with the dog meat smell question in that particular episode, we did uh, couch it as, uh, as in, in terms of, um, sort of idle speculation on our part. Mm -hmm. um, so, so hopefully, the hope is that, that when we do engage in speculation and sort of wonder out loud how things might come together, that, that those parts of the podcast will, will be more obvious and you know, will come across a little differently as opposed to us citing material and, um, you know, and, and making a, a more research case for various other aspects of the episode. Sure. I, th I think we actually take great pains to make clear when we're just sort of like spitballing and when we're actually citing, uh, citing something as fact. Mm -hmm. Or at least we try to. <laughs> okay, this next message is about our episode on super intelligent alien AIs. And this comes from Ian. Uh, this was a great email, but it was very long, so I had to make some some major cuts to it. I'm just going to read some parts of it. I've already done some, some pairing down here. Uh, Ian says, uh, Dear Rob and Joe, the episode I'm writing about today is your episode on super intelligent alien AIs and what their nature might be. 
Part of your discussion about distributed intelligence reminded me of the Geth, a race of intelligent machines in the Mass Effect video game series. Hmm. Rob, have you played these? Uh, I played part of one. I know they're very well reviewed, and um, uh-huh. I, uh, yeah, I've, I've always meant to pick them up, but um, I, it just it hasn't happened for one reason or another. I played them years ago and really enjoyed them. Some some really good world building in that, like uh, un, unusually good sci-fi world building, smart sort of thought out uh, politics of space. Oh, cool! I think they're re-releasing them or something. Like they're remastering the originals. Uh, yeah, they they just re-released them actually. Oh, okay. I've, I've been excited to go back and revisit them at some point. Whenever well, maybe I have I'll time. check it out. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, Ian goes on to explain uh, with with these particular characters. Uh, He says, in the game, the Geth were created hundreds of years ago by an alien race called the Quarians, which triggered a Terminator-style war that resulted in the Quarians being exiled from their home planet and becoming space nomads. Uh, As an aside, there's a neat twist here on the AI war. It was the Organics who started it. The precipitating event was one of them asking its Quarian owner... Does this unit have a soul? Once the Quarians realized the Geth had become sentient, they, the Quarians, attempted to wipe the Geth out before they could start a Terminator-style uprising. Their strategy backfired spectacularly. However, once the Geth had won the war and the Quarians fled, they did not give chase and instead just became isolationist, preferring to be left alone and do their own thing. The reason your discussion reminded me of the Geth was because of their nature. They are software, not directly tied to particular hardware. Each individual Geth is simply a copy of a not terribly intelligent piece of software designed to assist with menial tasks. In order to improve efficiency and allow them to perform more complicated tasks, the Quarians designed them to share computational resources with each other. Eventually, this led to the Geth becoming sentient, but it's only group sentience. Individual Geth processes are not intelligent enough to be self-aware on their own. They require a certain number of them operating in tandem to reach that point. They, quote, govern by what they call consensus, which involves rapidly sharing information between different processes until all agree on the appropriate course of action, or at least all of the processes within range of the hardware platform making the decision. It's acknowledged in the game that this type of decision-making could never work for organic races as it would simply take too long, and differing viewpoints make that kind of absolute agreement impossible. The Geth, however, being essentially many copies of the same piece of software, fundamentally all think alike, and so are able to come to unanimous agreement, despite there being uncounted trillions of, quote, individuals participating." Even with this super speed, essentially telepathic communication, they're limited by the laws of physics in their ability to coordinate over large distances. For instance, a fleet in one star system cannot directly communicate with the main Geth civilization, and so operates at reduced capacity using only the local hardware. It would then be reincorporated into the greater consensus upon return, bringing its knowledge and experiences from the trip with it. As a result, the grand project toward which all Geth activity is directed is the creation of a Dyson Swarm, with sufficient processing and storage capacity to allow all Geth processes to be uploaded into it and and truly become a single thinking group. I think this tied in well with your discussion of ASIs, or artificial superintelligences, keeping themselves localized to maximize computational efficiency. Apparently the game developers at BioWare had similar thoughts. 
And then there's a part where uh, Ian also talks about a, a, a plant that controls living beings with pheromones. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead to uh, follow up on this earlier idea raised about AIs here. Ian says, I wanted to share some of my own thoughts about the isolationist or localized uh, artificial superintelligences you discussed. As I understood the argument, it was that ASIs would tend to stay localized enough that all parts of themselves could communicate efficiently in order to maximize processing capability and an ability to consider everything available to it. I think this was part of uh, Susan Schneider's argument that they would be stay somewhat localized to, to be able to talk to all parts of itself. Uh, Ian says, I'm not convinced by this argument for two main reasons. The first is that expanding outside of the efficient communication bubble does not actually decrease the processing efficiency of the intelligence within that bubble. The fact that its expanded portions would have access to information and processing capability it does not is a change from if it had never expanded at all. Either way, it does not have that information or capacity. This is not so much a reason to expand as a critique of the efficient processing justification as to why it might not expand. My second objection is more related to the context of the discussion than the argument itself. The discussion began by considering what types of alien civilizations we might be likely to discover. In that context, ASIs uh, that remain localized are largely irrelevant. There could be millions of Dyson Swarm localized ASIs scattered throughout the galaxy, but if even one ASI was motivated to expand, that is the one we would most likely encounter. Ultimately, it's a variation on the Fermi paradox. Even if it is vanishingly unlikely that any given civilization might be motivated to expand, given the numbers and ages of stars and the timescales involved, someone should have colonized the entire galaxy by now. With 400 billion stars to potentially give rise to life, anything that prevents expansion into wider regions has to be absolute, not just a tendency, or someone would have already become the exception. And Ian says at the end, uh, sorry, this email ended up so long. Thank you so much for all the interesting discussions and food for thought you provide, Ian. Well, that, that's all very fascinating. Uh, I mean, and certainly it makes me more inclined to check out uh, these games in the future. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, really solid world building. I remember the, the Geth storyline was, uh, was a super interesting development. And, and it gets especially interesting with some twists in the second game that I don't want to spoil. Okay. Are the Geth, they, they are not uh, little bird people, right? Those are the Gek. From, Little bird uh, people. Yeah. Uh, and, oh, uh, you're thinking of in No Man's Sky. Yeah, yeah No Man's Sky. The, the yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, creatures you encounter. Uh, I'm rather taken with the Gek. I like I like their, their character design. Little sort of reptilian parrot type creatures. It's been a while, but I remember I, I made my character in No Man's Sky this little thing that had a floating birdhouse for a head. You can do that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. They do have some cool um, uh, changes you can make to it. But maybe if I ever go back to it, I'll, I'll, I'll get gecked up. All right. Here is a bit of listener mail from Dallin that, uh, in which they, uh, they chime in on one of our, our favorite uh, topics of discussion on the listener mail uh, episodes. And that is, of course, Sean Connery's accent in the movie Highlander and Highlander 2. Uh, so Dallin writes, it's time for me to enter the Sean Connery accent arena. As an actor, I have learned several different dialects and accents. I have become fluent in uh, British RP, basically the standard pronunciation without regionalisms, and several other British dialects along with Irish, 
and working on Scottish. In my practice with French and German, and my experience otherwise, once you know what to look for, you can definitely hear where a non-English speaker learned English. Most of it is how open or closed the vowels are. Something a lot of people don't think about is when an American and a person from the UK speak Russian, for example, the native Russian speaker can hear the American and British accents in their voices, even if that's something we wouldn't pick up on at all. I will end this here because I could accidentally turn this into a 40-page essay. Thank you, Dallin. Well, that's great. That's just some additional food for thought about just how accents work and how they work within language acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's great that we're, we're hearing from an actor who's, who's, who's working on developing these different accents. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly at times, the, the, there are examples of actors who, who have proven themselves rather phenomenal at, 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 uh, at taking on different accents, uh, you know, many times with the help of an accent coach. Uh, Sean Connery, of course, was not one of these actors, uh, and, and, and we should drive home again that uh, outside of 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 the the fantasy and the fiction and the dream weaving of of Highlander and Highlander Two, the real reason here is that Sean Connery couldn't slash wouldn't do another accent. So if somebody they were scared to ask him. <laughs> I I haven't I actually haven't researched this a lot, but I feel like I. I vaguely remember reading about there being maybe a project or two where it was requested and perhaps he tried, but mm-hmm. it just simply was not meant to be. And then ultimately, like, come on, you're, you're casting Sean Connery. You're going to mm-hmm. get Sean Connery doing Sean Connery's own voice. That's just that's just how it worked. The, the, did he ever try a Russian accent in Hunt for Red October? I don't think so. <laughs> that may have been the one where there was like some talk at some point about would he do a Russian accent and, uh, you know. Clearly, he did not. Um, but then again, you get into accent. I mean, it all gets kind of silly rather quickly when, mm-hmm. you know, you have a situation where characters would be speaking Russian. Uh, they would not be speaking American with a Russian accent. You know, you get into a lot of this with uh, uh, with certainly your movie Romans who often are, you know, are speaking British uh, accents, yeah. British accent, proper uh, British accents. In fact, uh, to tie a, into to Dallin's message, not just British accents, but received pronunciation, like yeah, the, yeah. the very <laughs> the very posh Tory British accent. Yeah, though, if if memory serves, there's a recent uh, German series uh, that is about uh, the Roman Empire, uh, in which they actually go to the trouble of having their Romans speak, um, uh, you know, accurate Latin of the day. Uh, oh. Ooh, I'm blanking on what the, the this show is called. Um, I think it is perhaps called Barbarians. Yes, I think it's Barbarians. Uh, I only watched one episode, so I really didn't get enough into it to really, you know, to really get into the series. Uh, so I don't, I, I, I can't recommend it or not recommend it because I mm-hmm. didn't, just didn't push forward enough. But I was impressed that the Romans are speaking uh, uh, actual Latin in this series. It's it's it's, it's a pretty pretty ambitious uh, concept. How did they pronounce the word Caesar? Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't know if Caesar came up. Oh, okay. they, they're they're very, as I recall, they're very uh, into into some regional issues. Uh, but I, I I don't remember. I, I should probably give the series another look. Okay, this next message is about the episode that I did with our producer Seth about frisson, the feeling of getting a shiver in the body from listening to music. Mm. Um, this comes from Renata. Renata, uh, and the subject line is music lover with no frisson. 
Renata begins, Hi guys, I thought I'd offer myself as an interesting data point. I'm a music nerd, a woman, and have had a strong emotional connection to music for as long as I can remember. I can almost feel the dopamine releasing in my brain when I listen to certain music, but I don't experience frisson. No chill, no shiver, no goosebumps. I get that feeling from other emotional responses, for example, certain emotional moments in movies, but I can't remember any experience of that sensation with music by itself. I paused your episode on Frieson midway to test myself to be sure and pulled up my go-to emotional piece, Jupiter from Holst's Planets. And I wasn't familiar with this before, so I had to look it up. Uh, so this is uh, also known as Jupiter Bringer of Jollity by the English composer Gustav Holst, which I, I think it was composed sometime in the early 20th century, maybe the 19-teens or so. But it's from his orchestral suite known as The Planets. There are seven entries in this. Uh, so wait a minute, seven, but The Planets. Well, he did not do one for Earth and he actually died before Pluto was discovered. So it's just uh, all the planets without Earth or Pluto, depending on, well, it would have been a planet when, when first discovered. Well, Earth already had enough music. Um, right. No, uh, Holst the Planets, yeah, these are, these are great, uh, great works. I remember I had these, I, I had, a, had some performances of, of these, uh, these pieces on CD uh, back when I was uh, like in junior high or something, I for some reason you know I picked up a couple of classical pieces, and this one had the planetary theme, so it's you know it's a little bit sci-fi. So uh, I ended up getting it, and um, yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. I realized when I was checking these out that I had heard say the theme from Mars before. That's a I think it's been in some movies. It's you would probably recognize it. Maybe we can include a little snippet. Imperial March. In fact, I think this is often cited as having inspired the the score to Star Wars. Um, mm-hmm. But the the one from Jupiter, I was also listening to, and uh, Renata, I got to say, Jupiter Bringer of Jollity. Uh, there was a part in it where I definitely got free songs. Something like it's a little bit less than three minutes into the version of um, Jupiter that I was listening to. When beforehand, there's been a lot of sort of uh, busyness and and sort of tinkling and different stuff going on, but it suddenly resolves into this strong unified melody and uh, and very powerful emotional body response for me. Which Jupiter is the Jupiter of Jollity? Oh, Jupiter Jolius? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so that was my reaction. But uh, but Renata writes, um, uh, yeah, I paused your episode on Frieson midway to test myself to be sure, pulled up my go-to emotional piece, Jupiter from Holst's Planets. It hits all the marks you outline in the episode about a moving, triumphant, but emotionally ambiguous sudden transition in music. I'd love it if you listened and let me know if it triggers Frisson and you. The part that really gets me is at about three minutes. Yes, that is exactly the part that really got me. So, uh, so right on right there. Um, but Renata says on cue, when I listened to it this time, it made tears stream down my face. It inspires intense drug-like feelings. And I immediately want to listen to it again. 
Uh, as far as the study about visualization, it triggers distinct images of harrowing space travel for me. Even though Holst composed the planet suite decades before space travel, Jupiter in particular nails the hopeful, terrifying glory you imagine astronauts feel. I looked at my arm and saw no goosebumps. I would describe the feeling from Jupiter and other music as more like that feeling you get when you slip into a hot tub and get a sudden rush of danger followed swiftly by intense release. Hmm. Well, that's interesting, uh, Renata. I would say if, you know, if you're having tears and you're having feelings of warmth going through the body, it, that seems like it would at least have some sort of overlap with Frisson, uh, though you're, you're just not experiencing uh, the feeling of chills or goosebumps, which are two of the commonly reported elements of Frisson, but not necessarily there for everybody. So it, I, I would say maybe that your experience still counts as some form of Frisson. It just seems like a, a variation that's uh, maybe not like the majority of people. Hmm. Now, um, now, first of all, I have to stress that I, I have not had the chance to listen to this episode yet. Um, I got back from my travels, and if, I think I've just been going yeah. <laughs> nonstop with other stuff. Uh, but, but I wonder if, if, if you guys got into this or, or based on this listener mail, uh, what you think about, about this. Like the idea of comparing it to, um, to a drug, it makes mm -hmm. me think about various pieces of music that in the past have had that effect on me, and then they lost that ability to affect me so perhaps through overuse of the music mm -hmm. or um you know changing attitudes toward the music like the one that comes to mind most readily is carl orff's carmina burana which is a, a, a wonderful work i'm not taking anything away from it but there was a time when i was in college and i where where i was first turned on to this where you know it was so new to me and i probably listened to it a little too much and then subsequently like i've observed it you know and heard it overused in the media you know you see it you see it popping up uh, uh as sort of go-to um you know emotionally stirring music mm -hmm. and so i don't have the same relationship with the piece that i once did though i still i still love it i still recognize it as being great but i don't i don't think it would have the same chilling effect on me today yeah when a great piece of music gets used in a commercial that really kind of kills it yeah but luckily um carmina burana is a very long piece it has mm -hmm. some sections that haven't been picked over uh by uh by by, by the media as much mm -hmm. uh so there's still a lot to, to love in there and of course he has some other works as well well, that is interesting. I mean, we certainly talked about the uh, dopaminergic reward pathways in the brain and how uh, certain experiences with music do seem to stimulate activity in those reward pathways, similar to how you would get stimulation of the reward pathways with any kind of um, stimulus that the brain is going to encourage you to try to repeat your exposure to. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is what happens with all kinds of things, with uh, with food, with sex, with drugs, with money. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the and that is uh, one of the primary functions of dopamine in the brain is to seemingly stimulate awareness of and motivation to acquire and reacquire these these stimuli or goals over and over again. And I think music can be like that. But yeah, one thing you might notice about lots of these other things is that if you just keep repeating the experience that you're getting that reward motivation to experience over and over again, it does have diminishing returns. In fact, this is often described as something that people experience with drug addiction, right? That, you know, mm -hmm. that the, the, the subsequent times of trying the drug are never as good as the first time. And people are constantly chasing after the experience of how good it felt the first time they were doing it. And, but of course that can't happen again. So they just keep trying more and more. 
I find that, that this results in, in two strategies for me. If there's a piece of music or an album that I just truly love, you know, one of those where it's like, you know, top 10 albums of all time, I'm more inclined to sort of real to, to be aware that I might be listening to it too too much or limit my exposure to the piece because mm-hmm. I want to continue to treasure it. Like I know this is going to happen. But then there are other tracks, especially if it's like a, I don't know, if it's like a really popular track that maybe I'm not like a really hardcore fan of the the artist, um, then I'll just say, well, to heck with it. I, yeah, this is feeling good. I'm just going to put it on repeat until mm-hmm. I feel nothing anymore. You know, like I will, I will put on uh, X going to give it to you. <laughs> until until I don't feel anything anymore because uh, ultimately I'm not as invested in that piece. Like uh-huh. it's okay if that if I completely you know wear the treads off of that track. Oh well, it's funny because it it can kind of come around full circle. X going to give it to you would be so at first you're grooving with it and then it becomes really funny and then mm-hmm. after it's been really funny you start thinking like this is a great song. Yeah, <laughs> I shouldn't give up. I'm too strong. Yeah, you you, you yeah. really sort of end up leaning into it. Uh, so yeah, you, you there's a there's a whole journey that takes place with um, obsessive listening of any song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Renata also has a, a part in her message about the uh, experience of ASMR, which, uh, as Seth and I alluded to, it seems possibly in some way sort of related or ha- might have some overlaps with Frisson, but it also seems like a different thing. So uh, we're not going to get into that here, but uh, but uh, thanks for sharing all this, Renata. Oh, and Renata says in the end, uh, in any case, enjoy your show, even though it doesn't give me chills. Cheers. <laughs> We've got to work on chills. Um yeah, well, that that was that was great. I really need to go back and listen to that episode because, um, uh, yeah, I would I'd love to hear uh, what what you and Seth had to had to say and to, to explore about this topic. All right, we have some Weird House Cinema centric listener mail here. This one comes to us from Bradburn. Hello, Joe, Robert, and Seth. An enthusiastic listener for many years now, I have more recently been enjoying Weird House and Artifact episodes very much. I had never heard of the movie Metal Storm, the destruction of Jared Sin before, and was indeed laughing out loud at the trailer. The topic of 80s 3D movies brought out an intense sense memory of being taken to the movies by my, I can only imagine suffering, mother to experience Star Chaser and the legend of Orin in mind-blowing red-blue 3D. Chock full of organ harvesting cyborg mutants, space battle laser stabs, uh, quote unquote sexy robot misogyny, swords made of light and spirit and cookie cutter heroes journey type movie. What more could you want? I've read about this movie as a notorious Star Wars ripoff that is awful. Also, you've mentioned in passing the movie Horror Vision a few times now, and it makes me smile every time as I have the possibly uh, uh, ignominious distinction of having been in a Canadian electronic industrial band whose song was featured in the dreamy desert driving scene in that movie. Stay safe and keep up the great work. Bradburn. Wait, have we mentioned Horror Vision? I thought we were we talking about Terror Vision. We were talking about Terror Vision, which I don't think has a desert driving scene, um, though it wouldn't be completely out of keeping with it. But yeah, I think we have our movies crossed here. Um, 
but I'm still excited about this. I've, okay. <laughs> anytime we can hear from, uh, uh, from a listener uh, who was ever in a Canadian electronic industrial band, uh, I'm excited and I really want to, uh, to, you know, to, 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 to pull the threads on this and see where it takes us. Uh, but yeah, I'm not familiar with the movie Horror Vision. I think this is a 2001 movie, so it's, it's still within the, like, the, the realm of, uh, of films that we sometimes find uh, quite interesting. Is Horror Vision straight out of Bandcamp? No, I don't think it is. Well, you know, let's just take a look at it real quick. Let's pull up the, the details here. Yeah, I don't know that I'm familiar with anybody involved in this. Let's see who produced it. Let's see if it was Charles Band. Um, oh, my God. It is Charles Band. <laughs> How could I doubt it? Yes, Charles Band was executive producer on this movie. Full moon, and- <laughs> baby. Full moon, fright night. Yeah, all right. I, I stand corrected. This is straight out of Bandcamp. Maybe Bradburn is wrong. Maybe Bradburn's music was in Terror Vision, not Horror Vision. If that were the case, I wouldn't blame you. Yeah, well, so you'll just have to write back in, Bradburn, and, uh, and, and set the record straight and tell yeah. us what the name of the band was. Now, I wonder if the differences between Terror Vision and Horror Vision as films track with the horror literary theory on the uh, the distinction between these two concepts in uh, fiction, like, you know, horror versus terror. What's the difference that horror is the emotion you feel when you see the thing you dread and terror is the emotion you feel leading up to that experience It's the dread you feel before you see it? Hmm. Well, given that I don't think Terror Vision really leans into this distinction very much, I, I, I doubt Horror Vision does either. Uh, but it would, be, it would be interesting to see. I'm more of a terror guy myself. I think. <laughs> um, all right. You know, this next bit is, is this, not a, this is not a listener mail uh, bit, but I've been meaning to, to mention this on an episode. Uh, if you listen to our discussions of the bicameral mind a while back, or perhaps some of our episodes on, that dealt with Neanderthals, you might have heard me mention writer Terrence Hawkins. Uh, I th- think this also came up in some past listener, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, summer reading episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, he wrote a book uh, titled The Rage of Achilles that uh, is the uh, a portion of the Iliad retold, leaning into Julian Jane's um, hypothesis of the bicameral mind. I really enjoyed it uh, when it when it came out, uh, and I also uh, really enjoyed uh, his other book, uh, his other novel, uh, American uh, Neolithic. And anyway, I just wanted to let everybody know that he has revised editions of both novels out now, uh, as well as a book of short stories titled Turing's Graveyard. I haven't had a chance to read that story collection yet, but it's on my bedside table uh, with the other various books. Uh, so you can find these wherever you get your books. More terror or more horror? Um, The Rage of Achilles? Yeah. Mm, I guess that's more terror, right? Yeah. Uh, Terror is what? uh, Terror is my, my, yeah, terror. Terror for sure. Right. Phobos and Deimos. Yeah, dread and rout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely some terror going on outside the, uh, the walls of Troy. All right. Well, uh, if there's nothing else here, I guess we'll close up the mailbag for today. Uh, We will be back. Uh, We'll probably have even more listener mail to touch on then because we're recording this one, I think, uh, like an extra week out. So um, the the, the great um, uh, nets that gather the the listener mail haven't had uh, as much time uh, to accumulate on this particular episode. But we look forward to reading your thoughts, your listener mail uh, related to other listener mails, uh, related to episodes that we've put out of Stuff to Blow Your Minds, episodes of Weird House Cinema. It's all fair game. And in the meantime, if you want to listen 
to other episodes of our show? Well, you can find it all on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Weird House on Fridays, Wednesdays we bust out the artifact, and on Mondays, that's Listener Mail. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.